find a scripture uh, printed in your bulletin. Now, this is a long psalm, and I am not going to cover all this long psalm because it's a sermon short. We're in the summer, uh, and we're in the summer short series walking through the, the Psalm 20s. And so we come to Psalm 25 this week, and I can tell you ahead of time that our focus, or my focus this morning, is going to be on verse 10 and verse 14. I'm going to come back to those again and again and again. But um, give attention to God's word, Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his trouble. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Okay, before I begin the uh, homily, I want to just take an opportunity for a side road and tell you something. Exegesis is different from eisegesis. Exegesis is where someone looks at the scripture and they will look at every verse, every word, they will look at it in context. They, for instance, if they were doing, if we're doing exegesis on Psalm 25, and let's say I'm focusing in on verse 14, exegesis will not only look at one word, friendship, in verse 14, but it'll look at all the verse of verse 14, then it'll look at all 22 verses of Psalm 25, then it'll find its placement in the Psalms, then it'll find its placement in the context of Israel's history or events. 
Exegesis is doing cross-references under the Reformation guideline of interpreting Scripture, which is Scripture interprets Scripture, or Scripture explains Scripture. In other words, if we're going to get to truth, we've got to see it in context, and we've got to see it in relation to where God speaks or acts elsewhere. Eisegesis, eisegesis is the opposite. Eisegesis is Joel Osteen. Being awake this morning? Come on. I don't know. I don't know why my family has been infected. Uh, not my immediate family under my roof, I can assure you, uh, but my family in Greenville has been infected with Joel Osteen. I don't know if he comes on in the right time on Sunday morning or not. But uh, my own father has been asking me what I think about Joel Osteen. And he's like, I just, you know, it's just so hard to get up and get in the truck and drive to church. And I'm old and I, I, those people, I don't really know them anymore. And, but Joel Osteen, man, that, that guy, he's good. He's really good. Joel Osteen will take one word and then he will give a lot of his opinion. And he may even have a really nice sounding mantra or saying from it. And he will say it with such enthusiasm and such charisma that it sounds right. But in the day of distress or in the day of our great need, it will be found as straw when we need something as strong as steel. And this morning, I want you to know that I do, each week, I do exegesis on Scripture. And because we're in a sermon short, I'm not going to be able to show you the foundation of a lot of things that I'm sharing with you, but you can trust as a minister of the gospel that it's not just my opinion. It's not just something that I thought would preach. It's got to be found with continuity. It's got to be found of substance and in context with the scriptures. So exegesis, eisegesis. It doesn't really relate a whole lot to what I'm saying this morning. But I just want you to know the difference. Uh, so turn Joel Osteen off and get back in the church. Um, I want to I do something this morning because um, of the way and the nature of this psalm. I want to show you three things this morning, A, B, and C. I want to show you first an aerial view, as if we were flying over the landscape of Psalm 25. I want to show you an aerial overview of Psalm 25. Secondly, B, I want to show you the big leap, the big leap that is before a man or a woman in distress. Or another way of putting that, the big leap that we face when we've got to make a decision. When we've got to make a decision, and it is not really addressed in the scripture as to how I should make that decision or it's not easy to figure out. It's not necessarily a moral thing, such as, who am I going to marry? The scripture doesn't necessarily say Jane instead of Sally. It gives us some things to think about, but it doesn't tell us who. So the big leap that is before a man or woman in distress or a man or woman who is facing a decision. And then C, I want you to see the, cush, the cushion, the cushion that awaits us in making this big leap, the cushion of the covenant. The cushion of the covenant is what meets us when we face decisions of a serious nature or when we face distress. Okay? First of all, the aerial view. 
What you would not initially know about Psalm 25 is that it is an acrostic. It's an acrostic. In fact, it's one of seven, one of seven uh, psalms that is an alphabetical acrostic. Each of these 22 verses, each line here, begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why would that be important? Why would they do that? They would go to great length to do that because of the importance of knowing not just one verse, verse 14, but the importance of knowing all 22 verses. And because there's so many, they would put it to the, the alphabet so even the youngest child could begin to recite them and commit them to memory. And there, as it's in memory in my heart, as I am facing a big decision or as I do find myself threatened or as I do find myself in distress, then God, through the power of His Spirit, is allowed now to, that that I've put in the storehouse, that that I've put in memory, He brings out. I can remember doing this but when, a, when a man is going to become a minister, as I did about years ago, when I was going to become a minister, I had to, upon the completion of three years of seminary, working on my master's, stand before what's called a presbytery. And there you have rather grim ministers. They're looking very serious, and they're going to examine me. And one of the things that is fair game is they can ask me to outline any book of the Bible. Now, I thought, hmm, how am I going to remember and be able to outline all 66 books of the Bible? So, I began to form an acrostic for every book in the Bible. Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Each of those letters stands for something. In, I, in, and then the, I, the inception of the world. In, newlyweds in the garden. T, temptation. So I began to associate all of those things so that when I was standing before men and I was under pressure, then I would have this acrostic that I could outline the whole book. Well, the problem came when somebody said, all right, what do we find in Genesis 20? And I'm like, okay, hang on just a minute. In, inception, in, newlywed. That was a problem. But also recognize that Psalm 25 has a posture. Thomas Fuller, a Puritan, said, and we've been going through the Psalms that are in the 20s. He said, if you look to Psalm 22, for instance, you would find in Psalm 22, you would find uh, the individual that's being talked about laid out in great distress. I mean, he is emaciated, he is he's as a potsherd, he is wounded, he's dying. We knew that that was Christ dying for our transgressions in the throes of death, but even yet, trusting and having faith in God. But he says, this man is laid out. But then when you come to Psalm 25, you see the man here in Psalm 25 is kneeling. He's praying. In fact, one author put it this way. He said, and if you look at it, you can kind of see the, 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 the points where he is in prayer and then he meditates. Okay? Verses 1 through 7, he's in prayer. Verses 8, 9, and 10, he's in meditation. Verse 11, he's in prayer. 
verses 12 through 15, he's in meditation. And meditation can be thinking out loud, beginning to recite to himself even that that he has prayed, or what is the likelihood of being answered, what is the character of God, what do I know to be true. And then in verses 16 through 22, we find once again that he is in prayer. So what we have is this back and forth of prayer and really chewing on it, what I know to be true about God. And then praying, I'm in, I'm in distress, I'm in great, great distress. My enemies are, are looking for me to fall and they're going to gloat over me and it's going to be to my shame. And then, but God is my God. God, you don't want me to experience shame anymore. And then there's that prayer, but then there's that recall, the recall of the covenant, the promises that God has made to be their God, to be my Father, and I hang on to those things. So we see that, that give and take and that motion. Psalm 25, in many ways, is the way that we're should, we should pray, particularly when we're facing a big decision or particularly when we're in distress. And then that's the last thing I would say regarding the aerial view, is that it's not so much, he does in verse 22, almost as an appendix or an add-on, he says, and God, remember Israel. Remember Israel, as he says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. What he has been doing for the previous 21 verses is he's been bringing his distress and his trouble to God in prayer, and he's been meditating on God who rescues and who has made these promises in his covenant. But he says in verse 22, and you know what? I'm not alone in this. All Christians, or as he would say, all Jewish believers, all those who look to you and the sacrificial lamb for atonement, we, we, we struggle and we have troubles. Lord, redeem them too. So we see a man in these passages here that is in great distress. He's considering again and he's recalling the covenant of God. Notice there's these terms like in uh, chapter 25, verse uh, 6. It says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Then you go down to verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps bringing this this character of God, his steadfast love, it's immovable. He doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He loves me because he's put his love upon me and it will never be removed. Like a father to a child, he loves me not because of what I've accomplished or will accomplish. He loves me because I am his. And that love is steadfast. And he's saying this in this period of distress and he's looking with faith to God to answer him and to deliver him. But God has not yet arrived, but he waits, and he doesn't waver, and in his patient waiting, he continues to pray, and then as he prays, he recalls God's promises to never leave him, never abandon him. Now, there's a principle at stake here. There's a principle at stake here, and that is this. God loves us so much that we are not freed from all distress and all decisions that press us, but he uses those things to both shape us and to drive us to him who alone has the answers, but he does not abandon us ever.
In other words, the principles at stake, where do we go when we're in distress? And why do I sense that God has abandoned me when I face this decision? Has he, or am I simply not looking at the right places? Now, there's a big leap that every one of us faces. There's a big leap that every man and woman in distress, or, and I've used that synonymously with having to, to make a decision. It may not seem like a big decision to others, but it's a big decision to me. That there's a big leap or a step off into the unknown that I must take. Now, look in the, if you were to start with your highlighter or your uh, pen and you started to underline every occurrence of the word way, ways, path, Look at verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That is what is before us, that we have a decision to make. Think right now. We have lost 10 to 12 people in the last couple of months because they made a decision to geographically relocate, some to continue their education, some to because of work-related or job-related, others because of transfer and movement. But I assure you, in talking with those individuals, there was a point in their life that there was uncertainty which way to go. Do I go this way or do I go that way? When, this, when the word way occurs in Psalm 25, there's two different ways that way occurs. First way. If you look in verse, um, verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Okay, right there, it's talking about the way that the Lord would have all of us walk in, and it has to do with conduct and obedience. It's a moral way. If I'm thinking, you know, I just don't know if I should steal that off the shelf or not. Which way should I go? It's a no-brainer. God's moral law guides me. His commands give my thinking and decision-making at that point structure. It's a no-brainer. But then there's a second way. If you look at uh, verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord, Teach me your, and the word occurs there again, pass. Lead me in your truth and teach me. That's the way of God's leading us individually. God leads me in a very personalized, individually shaped way. He has, as it were, a plan for my life. He is guiding me in that. That way is different. And I have found that about 90%, 90% of the personal decisions that I wrestle over, there is no moral law, there is no commandment that addresses it directly. It could be a decision as to where do we move? Or do we move or not even? Or who do I marry? Or should I take that job or stay where I am? Should I, is smaller decisions, should I buy that car now or should I not? 
And you know, that car may look really flashy to some, but I'm getting a great deal on it. Is God upset? Does he, God, there's no moral law such that God, I don't want to say God is uncaring as if he's indifferent to the decisions that you make, far from it. But God doesn't care what color car you drive. He really doesn't. But some of us would never, never even inquire of God thinking that it's just such small potatoes. That's part of what I that's part of the reason that I really enjoyed working on Psalm 25 this week. Because what is the distress that this man is in? Let's say that David wrote this psalm. Many people believe that David did, but then there are others that believe that David did not write this psalm. But let's let's assume that David wrote this psalm and he had trouble in his house. His boys, teenage boys, were really giving him you know, headaches and fits. They were basically running around and trying to stab him in the back, pushing the old geezer off the throne a little quicker than he was ready to go. He was, they were just talking about themselves and bad-mouthing him. He had a lot of things on his plate. But you don't know that for sure in Psalm 25. It could have been a very much, much smaller matter. And that's what I like about Psalm 25, because... I notice about myself that I have a tendency that if it's a real small decision that I have to make, I generally don't include God in it at all. Not at all. And why do I do that? Because I have this principle that God only cares about the big stuff. And that's a false principle. Some of you, some of you do not pray about the little things because you think, it's, it's important to me, but I'm so small. And this is such a small thing compared to the problems in the universe, and you never pray at all. Some of you also would do that even with your sin and your offenses. You say, it's such a small thing, I'm not even going to bother God with that. So whether it's something that distresses us because it's a decision-making or something that is oppressive to us, or whether it's our own sin, whether it's even our own ill health, whether it's a, a decision that, that, we, that we look at and it's just very, very small, God encourages us. This psalmist, because he doesn't say what the distress is, encourages us to come again before God, who is the covenant-keeping God. Now, the big leap here is that he's got to see and he's got to choose, is he going to go in that way? Is he going to go in that path? Is he going to include God in the decision-making process? Because, you see, God, sometimes, if you're considering buying a house right now or not, I hope you pray about it. I really hope you pray about it. But what if God doesn't answer immediately? What will keep you waiting? Because if you've made the leap to go God's way, then you may very well need to wait for some time before he answers or before he leaves before he shows you the way. Are you willing to wait? Or do you say, you know what, it's so small, it's so important, and it's so small as well, I'm not going to bother God with it, and then we make the decision that can brand us as the fool. Which I've got to leave this, but let me tell you something else. Verse, the verses that, that I pulled out to look at uh, verses uh, 14 and then also verse 10. It falls to what we call the wisdom literature uh, motif. And that's how part of the way that they date 
this, uh, this psalm. And when you look at the best wisdom uh, book in the Bible, it's Proverbs. You'll see that there's three individuals. There is the righteous man or woman. There's the righteous man or woman who goes God's way and he makes good decisions. He makes decisions that God blesses. He, he becomes successful or he becomes fruitful, as it were, because he goes God's way and he makes decisions God's way. And the, the scripture is filled. Again, this is, don't take eisegesis. This is exegesis, but trust me. You read in the Proverbs over and over again of how the righteous man waits on the Lord, how the righteous man takes the counsel of men that have waited on the Lord, how the righteous yields to the Lord, how the, the righteous will even say, I know that I am foolish, and that is even a mark of his righteousness and wisdom. Then you've got the second guy. You've got the sinful guy. You've got the wicked. The wicked man or woman. And that, in Proverbs, is always someone that absolutely refuses to go God's way absolutely refuses to consult with God, absolutely refuses to wait on God. And we see in the Proverbs how he, he has a shortened life. He makes bad decisions. He begins to be trouble even to his best friends. That he begins to, to be someone that, that food doesn't even taste good to him anymore. That he chomps his teeth because he's so frustrated because things never come to any type of fruit, fruitful end. And then... There's the third category. Wait a minute. Didn't I just say that there was the righteous? Didn't I say the wicked? What do you mean there's a third category? There's a third category, and he's the fool. He's the fool. And as you read Proverbs, which I encourage you, today is the 10th of July, read chapter 10. Tomorrow is July the 11th, read chapter 11. And it's good every month, just keeping your nose in the Proverbs. But if you do so, you'll find that there is one character who's not altogether wicked and he's not righteous. He's the fool. And he is the one that sometimes he listens, but he doesn't go that way. Or other times he refuses to even listen at all because he's just so chattering away that it's offered, but he doesn't take it because he is so busy doing, he's so busy making decisions on his own power that even though wisdom is before him, he does not take it. And I submit to you that by and large, Rivers is made up of those that are righteous and that are fools. I find myself vacillating in those two categories more often as not. I certainly wouldn't count myself as the wicked in the sense that I would totally, outright, knowingly spurn God's counsel. But I do find myself very foolish at times that I never seek His counsel at all. I never make any kind of leap. I never make any kind of trust. You know why? Because sometimes I'm actually fearful of what He would tell me. He might tell me to do something I don't want to do. <laughs> so I might even hear it. You can ask Wendy. I might even hear it and then go off and do my own thing. And that is a mark that God would say, here in Psalm 25, this author, he is found as whatever it is. And I submit to you, it could be something very, very small, but big to him, big to him, that he's going to bring it to God. And he's going to beseech God. And he wants God to direct him in his way. He wants to go 
God's way. Why? Because if you look at verse 5, and then it's described in verses 16 through 20, he says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Currently, he feels like he is not in God's way. He can see it, and he wants it. He wants to go with God and in his path, but, but he can't get there. He's caught. It's like his foot is caught in a snare. And he says, man, I want to, my eyes are on the Lord and I want to go with him, but I'm, I'm snared here. Maybe it's his own foolishness. Maybe it's his own failure previously to follow advice that was given or counsel that was given or wisdom that was applied. But he has found that he wasn't going God's way and now he's trapped. But he doesn't try to get himself out. He says, I call out to the Lord and he turns and he sees, and this is all explained in those verses, and he brings me out again, and he sets my feet on the right path. How did he do that, or why did he do that? Final thing, the cushion of the covenant. Look at verse 14. Now, you probably have a footnote, if you have a Bible, you have a footnote beside the word friendship. And there are other words that are used. Your Bible may say secret counsel. That's because of the way friendship is defined. Friendship, the word here in Hebrew, kald, kald, and it means cushion, or it means couch, or it means the, the place that you recline with a friend. The word means a council of friends or a counselor. And so it's a very, it's a good word with the image that it creates in that here the psalmist says, what I really want, what I really long for is friendship with the Lord. I long to be able to sit with him, recline with him, be with him, and then as a friend will advise a friend, as a friend will speak with a friend, that he will speak with me. And he says, that can be accomplished. In the, if you've got a Bible, John 15, verse 15. No longer Jesus speaking to his disciples. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And it's something that is very, very personal. And it, and it gives the psalmist this sense of not only intimacy and, and a sense of confidence that he's heard, but even more, confidence that he's loved. It's not a boss advising an employee. It's not a master speaking down to a servant. It's God drawing very near, as he did in the psalmist's time with Abraham and Moses, David, if you didn't write this, that he drew very near to them and he spoke as a friend to them, very loving, very very faithfully concerned and not indifferent to even the smallest of, of decisions. And he says, the friendship of the Lord, that's what I want, that's what I long for, that intimacy so that we could just, I could, I could share my, my problem and he would speak with me as a friend, one who concerned and he may say something very stern but it's for my own best interest 
that he speaks, and he shares that with them. And, not, and what does he speak? At the end of verse 14, it says, he makes known to them his covenant. Now that's a reference back to Genesis 17, when God first spoke to Abraham. That he came, and he addressed him, and he spoke to him, and he said, I am going to make a covenant or a promise. That's a synonym for covenant. I'm going to make a promise to you. And my promise is this. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be your God, and you're always going to be my people. And your children, I'm going to be their God. And their children, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. I'm going to make a great nation of you, but I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So to a Hebrew, when you said covenant, brit, when you said that, they immediately would go back and they would realize the truth that God found them when they were unlovable. There was nothing about Abraham to make him attractive. He said, I am going to put my love upon you, and you are going to be like a, a child looking to me, and I'm going to direct your feet, and I am going to bless you. And as long as you follow my commands, and as long as you walk in my path, and you follow my lead, you will be successful. You will be fruitful. And the greatest fruit will be the intimate relationship that we have together as we walk together through this life. And then you can encourage others that they can walk in fellowship with me. Now, we're almost done with the message. Have you seen Christ yet? If you're a guest with us, we have been walking through the Psalms that are found in the 20s. And each week, so far, in the Psalms 20 through 24, we've been able to see very clearly Jesus Christ presented, such as in Psalm 23. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. But have you seen him here? Have you seen where he makes his appearance here? If you look in verse 10, it says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That path is described and defined like a wagon rut. It's a well-worn path. It's a path that God traffics in back and forth. He walks this path. If you want to know the character of God, then you're going to judge and recognize him to be having the attributes of steadfast love and faithfulness. Where can I find that? You look over to, once again, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, Proverbs 16, verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Can I translate that? By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. In other words, by a furious, fierce, jealous love for his own, one will shed his blood that they might be his own forever. By shedding his blood to remove all of their sin so that they might begin to have that happy relationship even as a parent to a child that God has destined them for. How is it accomplished? In verse 6 of Proverbs 16, it says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs uh, 14, uh, 25, 14 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that it's that scary type of fear. Not at all. It means that it is for those that revere him that we see his awesome power, but we see the great depth of his grace at work 
for our sin. And it, we're, we're beholding of Him forgiving one such as us in such a manner that we can't quite comprehend the depths of His love. In other words, we recognize Him as a power. We recognize the depth of His love for us. But it's not something that causes us to run away. It's something that look, causes us to look at Him with awe and wonder and love and amazement. Does it make sense to you that in verse 14 you can't have friendship and fear as well? What kind of relationship would that be where one is friendly and one is, as he makes his approach to a friend, that one is just so scary that this one is fearful? That's not a relationship. So even by it being uh, incompatible, it must be something else. But as you look at this word that appears so frequently in the Scripture, what it is talking about is that it's this this awe and this wonder and this reverence that you are speechless in his presence such that he would be your friend, such that he would constantly greet you in the very path of his character and his namesake, steadfast love and faithfulness, which is his covenant pledge and promise to us. How are we going to remember all this? How are we going to remember that we can approach God with even the smallest of our sin and the smallest of our distress, the smallest of our decision, and that the principle will hold true that because we're His, He will not abandon us, and because He is our friend and our Father and our Savior, and because of the Holy Spirit, that He delights to hear the things that trouble us, and He has not abandoned us. In fact, if we feel that we're distressed, perhaps it's just an indication that we have not yet turned to Him. How can we remember all of these things? An acrostic, an acrostic, according to Hebrew scholars, was designed many times to actually spell out the author's name. In that word, that Hebrew word for acrostic is the word for sign, and then later it was translated signature so that you could look at an acrostic and you could see the author's signature. And the acrostic itself would testify to the very heart of the author of the one who wrote it. Well, this morning, you have another acrostic before you. You have wine, you have bread, and you have no lamb. You have wine that represents one who shed his blood to wash away all of your sin. You have bread that represents his flesh that was broken, beaten, whipped, thorns pressed into his brow, he was spat upon, everything that we deserve. But he took it in order to win our love that we would be his. But at this Passover feast that we celebrate, there is no lamb. That is because Christ is the lamb he is present with us now. He is present in these elements and around these elements and with us to serve us like he served his first disciples, to say, I no longer call you servant, but as you take of this, I call you friend. And I am your friend. Come to me, even when you're distressed or even as you face decisions, come to me. For I delight to hear the needs of my people. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would take this cup and you take this bread and set it aside for your holy use.
that it would feed our hearts and feed our soul, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite our elders to come forward as they prepare to um, hold the elements before us. The liturgy is found in your bulletin this morning. Let us proclaim now the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And Kenny will have the bread and the cup for tincture or dipping. Shane will have bread and a common cup.